Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Greg Chase. I'm a partner at the law firm of Reed Smith here in New York, where I run our transactional maritime practice. Very pleased to mo moderate this panel this afternoon. It's a large panel, and it's a little bit of a longer panel, but we have a lot to talk about uh, on M&A and shipping. It's been kind of an active period, and we have a great representative group. Uh, maybe I'll go right down the line and let everybody introduce themselves, talk a little bit about what they do, and then we'll go from there. Chris. Perfect. So I'm Chris Wires. I run the maritime investment banking practice at Stiefel Financial. We're a full-service, middle-market-focused investment bank. Um, I think that's enough about us. Right. And uh, I'm Hamish Norton. I'm the president of Starbolt Carriers Corp. We have 110 uh, dry bulk ships uh, divided roughly evenly between Supermax class, Panamax class, and Cape Size class. Uh, hi, I'm Pankaj Khanna. I work with George Economo. I'm also on the board of Hydemark. Ian Weber, CEO of Global Ship Lease, a container ship owner, 38 vessels, uh, merged last year with Poseidon, which um, quadrupled, more than quadrupled our net asset value. Uh, prior to that, I was at CP Ships, a container ship operator, which was a major consolidator uh, from 95 through 2005. Craig Stevenson, CEO of Dominus Shipping, just merged with CPLP. Uh, we have 68 ships, basically 75% uh, of them are product carriers and 25% are crude. Um, Jerry Calogiratos, I'm the CEO of Capital Product Partners. Uh, Post-merger with um, uh, Diamond S, uh, we are now a master limited partnership uh, with uh, 11 vessels, that's 10 containers and one dry bulk vessel, all of them on uh, long-term uh, charters. Well, thank, thank you very much. The, we've certainly seen a number of transactions in recent months, and I think some of the key participants are with us this afternoon. Uh, Chris, but maybe I'll start with you. What is driving this latest spate of transactions? I think we had several transactions last year. The transaction that closed last week is certainly significant. We'll talk about that this afternoon as well. But what's, what's setting this trend? I, mean, I think there's a few different drivers. Um, I think amongst the, um, you know, and, and most of the mergers we've seen happen are kind of, you know, either two public companies merging together or, you know, private companies merging into public companies. We haven't seen a lot of, you know, private companies merging together, but the drivers, you know, of public company consolidation are effectively, I think, primarily twofold. Public companies really want to get bigger. Um, you know, there, there's a strong desire amongst institutional equity investors that you have a big market cap and a large public float, and um, and you know, institutional investors who invest large amounts of capital can easily trade in and out of the stock without you know moving the shares too much. And very few shipping companies fit that category today. You know, some are closer to getting there than others, but I think there's you know a bit of a race amongst the public companies to become you know bigger and you know more investable from a public company perspective, and then. Amongst a number of the private companies, particularly the ones you know that you know were formed after the financial crisis by um, you know financial sponsor investments, a lot, a lot of those sponsors you know need to exit. They're reaching the end of their um, kind of you know life cycle of their investment funds that have made these investments. And if you own a big fleet of ships, it's difficult to sell ships piecemeal. 
Um, one, because there's you know not a lot of cash buyers for those ships. Two, you've typically built a big infrastructure around your shipping company, and you know it's difficult to slowly downsize. It's much easier to do a merger, um, where you've merged the entire company. So we've been seeing a lot of these, you know, private equity and hedge fund-owned companies, you know, merging with public companies in an effort to get, you know, liquidity for those shareholders. The benefit from the public company side is, you know, they're able to increase their market cap and public float as a result of these transactions. But what about synergies? Is it all about the PE exit and public companies trying to get larger, or are we actually creating some operational synergies of these transactions? If you want me to take that, I, I would say there synergies is a factor, but it's it's not a driving factor in, in marine mergers that we've worked on. Um, I think there's you know the 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 GNA costs and, the, and you know which typically can get taken out tend to be small relative to the overall kind of cost of running an enterprise, and you know these. Industries are so big and so diversified that, you know, there's not really revenue synergies associated with mergers. Um, they're there, you know, and, and they are, you know, to some degree meaningful, but they're not the key drivers in the deals we've worked on. Although, uh, you know, it's sort of interesting. Uh, we've uh, merged with a few smaller private companies, and uh, it has produced minimal synergies for us but it has produced significant synergies for the shareholders of the small private companies we merged with in the sense that we were able to reduce the operating cost and the overhead cost of the companies we acquired so that the shareholders of those companies in effect benefited from that reduction in cost, although frankly it had a negligible benefit to Starbucks operating cost per vessel per day and Starbucks overhead cost per vessel per day. I, some benefit, but really very small. Uh, I mean, I can say for the ocean rig transaction as well, we sold this company last year and Transocean uh, will have synergies of up to 50 million a year from that transaction. So while it's not a driver, but when you look over the time horizon of that business of let's say 10 years, that's half a billion dollars in savings. Ian, what would you say? Was there, were synergies a factor in your transaction? A small factor, yes. Um, it's, it's, synergy savings is not a driver of consolidation on the ship-owning side of, um, of the industry, I would suggest. And we, we've, we estimate we might take $5 million of cost out of the business from lower SG&A and lower operating cost, and that's on a cost base of $100 million. Um, so it's important, but it's not transformative. If you go back to liner uh, operators, um, the Mersks, the CMAs, the Chinese, the MSCs, there with a much broader range of activity, there, there is significant scope for synergy saving from network rationalization, uh, landside infrastructure, sales organizations, agencies, container sourcing. Um, so it's, it's a much, much bigger uh, piece of the jigsaw puzzle for an operating company than it is from an, for, from an, for an asset owner. Craig, what would you say? Which of these factors were fundamental in your transaction? Um, I would basically agree with Hamish and, and Ian that depending on the size of uh, the relative company that, that comes together, if it's a very small company that merges with a much larger company, then I agree Hamish is, is spot on. I don't think there are tremendous uh, amount of um, uh, sort of efficiencies to be gained. Things like buyers clubs, 
make a lot of sense, uh, and and you can have significant savings as a result of consolidating a number of ships together. Um, but other than that, I don't think there's a tremendous, you know, it's not, it's not the driver to do the transaction, if you will. Jerry, we, we saw each other not too long ago and you talked to me about fleet optimization when we talked about these kinds of questions. Is that, how would you categorize that? Is that, that creates some synergy? I would say that in general, once um, you get together with uh, a good shipping operator um, or you get two good shipping operators in a room that uh, are incentivized to uh, find synergies uh, and uh, find best practices, there is uh, incremental value to be generated. So um, here in this, uh, in this occasion, we have discussed uh, potentially uh, joint commercial uh, management, uh, buyers clubs, as uh, Craig said, uh, best practices in HSQE, um, and so on and so forth. And I think that all this uh, can potentially lead, maybe not um, on the day of the transaction, but uh, in the short to medium term, um, drive value for, uh, for shareholders. That might not be what is driving the transaction, but in the long term, there is uh, things to be gained. Of course, to Hamish's point, uh, I think from um, a certain size onwards, uh, it's difficult to generate uh, incremental synergies that are material enough. Uh, but uh, you can always uh, find best practices that might not be quantitative, but uh, qualitative that uh, in the end uh, are good for, um, uh, for the business. So if it's less about synergies, we're talking about liquidity on the sell side, what, what is actually, what, what type of liquidity considerations did you have in mind when you merged? Well, for, for us it was, um, a slightly different angle to what uh, I think uh, Chris described uh, previously as uh, the general rule for um, uh, this M&A transaction. So for us, it was more an asset optimization exercise, being an MLP uh, with uh, 36 ships, of them being 25 being tankers, 10 containers, and one old dry bulk vessel. At the time that uh, many of these tankers uh, had increasingly more spot exposure, it was difficult to fit them in our business model, which is more long-term cash flows uh, and stability. So in a way, we decided to pursue this transaction in order to divest from assets that are creating this volatility and at the same time find them a better home in the form of Diamond S, which is more of a spot operator. Um, and to this point, I mean, uh, on day one of uh, trading post-transaction, the value that was generated uh, was about $45 million or 15% of uh, the equity value of, of CPLP uh, pre-transaction. So it wasn't so much liquidity considerations uh, rather than more um, uh, asset optimization. And, and Craig, from your perspective? You know, we, uh, we've been trying to get public for a long time. Uh, and so we have, uh, you know, basically seven PE firms that, that sponsored the company, uh, looked at many, many transactions. I think this transaction um, happens to represent the, the best opportunity for Diamond over those years. Uh, I do need to give Jerry all the credit. He came up with the structure himself and uh, very innovative structure. It sounds simple, but it was actually quite complicated. Um, you know, I think you know, I think a lot of people would, would like to be public today. I don't know how big the queue is, but I know it's, it's meaningful and it's quite difficult to get public today. 
And so when we look at the marketplace, we're, we can be excited about, about the opportunity that exists between the order book, between uh, IMO 2020 and, and where we stand. It, it seems like a, a significant market is, is clearly coming. And we wanted to be, we needed to have the right time, we needed to be public now. And so that was super important to us. Um, and to uh, partner up with a very uh, high quality ship owner that's demonstrated over the years, they understand how to, how to play the market is uh, a tremendous advantage to us. And it's a bigger, bigger market cap than we would otherwise have. And so all those things are super positive for us. It sounds very exciting. Ian, I know in your transaction, uh, your, your counterparty effectively was able to get access to a public listing as well. Was that the key driver yeah. for your transaction? Uh, for, for, from their perspective, I, I, I guess so. Um, so I would echo exactly what Craig said as a you know, private company getting access to the public markets. Uh, for, for us, in a way, the legacy public company, why did we do it? Um, well, at a stroke, we significantly improved the quality of our fleet. Um, our, our fleet is now, on average, larger, younger, much better specified, much better suited uh, for IMO 2020 with um, you know, wide beam eco vessels burning less fuel, much more attractive to charterers. Uh, so that was, that was one consideration. The second consideration was the complementary nature and qualities, uh, we like to think at least, um, of the management teams. Um, uh, the, the, we've, we've not lost any senior member of the management team um, and we don't want to uh, because the, the, the two teams work well together. Um, uh, but the most important thing for us was scale. Um, I said that we'd more than quadrupled the net asset value of the business. We, we were small, $100 million. Um, we're, we're now half a billion dollars. And that gives us much better access to capital, be it public or private and in due course, be it debt or equity. Hey, Amish, I think you had three separate transactions in 2018. Was it, was it the access to the public listing for your counterparties that was the key driver? Um, you know, I think, I think <coughs> our counterparties wanted the public listing and um, we found it attractive because it increased our market cap and our liquidity, um, and, um, and and also, frankly, reduce the percentage shareholding of some of our large shareholders, making it effectively more liquid for them, easier for them in any eventual exit that they might want to do. Um, and um, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't a huge increase in market cap or liquidity for us, but it was it was significant and helpful. Pinkaj, was your transaction last year driven by separate factors? Uh, well, for us, it was a bit different. Uh, Ocean Rig UDW was an ultra-deep water drilling company with 11 rigs. Uh, we had about $3.7 billion of debt back in 2016, and the company went through a restructuring and came out with uh, almost zero debt, uh, but with uh, shareholders that were the original creators. And these shareholders included people like Elliott, Canyon, Blue Mountain, Avenue, and so on. Uh, the good thing about the restructuring was that the management's interests were completely aligned with the shareholders. So as a result, uh, we basically ran a process to sell the company to the 
best bidder. Uh, that process was not uh, successful, but we kept in touch with the potential bidders and Transocean is the largest player in the industry. Eventually came up with an offer that uh, makes sense for the shareholders. So the good thing as well about the structuring of the transaction, we got about 12 uh, bucks per share out of 28 as cash. So the shareholders were effectively able to exit part of their position. So a lot of the mergers that we're talking about in shipping, they have not really resulted in any exits for the PEs. And that will, of course, will be a factor over the next sort of 18 to 24 months and needs to be managed. Uh, in this transaction, we were able to effect a complete exit for all of the shareholders uh, and got some cash out of it as well. So, you know, Chris, this, this phenomenon of ships for shares, I think, is something that's kind of, you know, generated or come along in this, in this recent phase. Is, is the complete exit key? Can, is, is it useful to sellers, these financial sponsors, to uh, only get shares in public companies? Does it give, what, what are the advantages of public companies over private companies with the ability to use these shares as a currency? Yeah, so so it, it's it's a little bit complicated, but you know, in, in in my view, you know, most of the companies that emerge for shares, you know, have multiple institutional shareholders on the private side, like Craig's company, Diamond Ass, he had seven different PE funds. Um, you know, I, I don't think all of those PE funds, you know, necessarily want to sell or to you know continue to own. So they've got divergent views in terms of what they want to do with their equity, um, and. One, one of the, you know, via, via the stock merger, you know, these funds then get equity in the public company and then they can choose to do what they want to do with it. They can hold it for a long time, they can sell it. You know, a lot of these public companies are, you know, reasonably illiquid still, so it's not necessarily like easy to sell, but it's a lot easier to sell a minority position in a public, illiquid public company than it is to sell a minority position in a illiquid um, private company. And these public companies, you know, while they may be illiquid, you know, initially as these large institutions sell, you know, they'll sell to, um, you know, regular way institutional buyers and it'll become public float and the stocks will become more liquid, you know, over time. So, you know, I think ultimately, you know, if there were cash buyers that were willing to pay, you know, prices that were interesting to all the owners of these companies, they would prefer cash, but there aren't cash buyers today. And, um, you know, these stock mergers provide, you know, a, the best alternative. I, I think in certain cases, uh, public company stocks are trading well below NAV and have been for a while. Uh, is that affecting the calculus here and whether people, you know, want to do a transaction? Well, uh, you know, the, the the transactions we did were all done at NAV to NAV, um, and uh, our share price was, was actually not too far from NAV in, in some situations, but was below NAV for most of the time during the negotiation of the transactions. and. Um, you know, with a, with a small-ish discount to NAV, it's not necessarily a major impediment. With a large discount to NAV, it can get awkward to uh, have maybe a private shipping company that you're marking on your books at net asset value, and all of a sudden you get publicly traded shares that are trading at a big discount to NAV. There's almost no way to avoid a mark-to-market of a publicly traded share. So I, I think you've seen a slowdown in the transaction volume. 
Ian, what would, would, what would your observations on this be? Uh, do we need to see a, a recovery of sort of the average NAV to, uh, to share price before we see more activity? Well, that, that would be great. Um, the, the reality is that most maritime stocks are struggling to trade at NAV. We certainly are. Uh, our deal, like, like many of Hamish's, was done at NAV to NAV, so stock price was less relevant. Um, if it had been done at, uh, at, at based on stock price, I don't think the deal would have gone through. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, if we can if we can close the discount to NAV across the maritime sector, and obviously selfishly, particularly for global ship lease, uh, then I think that would open up the doors for further possibilities. Good. Craig, do you have an observation on that? No, I, I think I think what everyone's saying uh, is obvious, and that is, if you trade a at a significant discount to your real NAV, it's an impediment. It's no question about it. I mean, it's not impossible, but uh, uh, you know, you, you'd like to be in the zip code of NAV, um, and then you could probably do a significant number of deals. Yeah. So, so Chris. You know, given this 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 dynamic, if if we saw stocks trading at a higher price relative to NAV, wouldn't that mean that other companies could raise money more easily? Would that would that actually encourage merger activity, or would it just cause people to go out and try to do their own uh, capital raises? Yeah, so I think it's interesting. I think when shipping companies trade above their NAV, it also is detrimental to share M&A activity because companies who trade above their NAV would typically prefer to pay cash than you know, issue shares on an NAV to NAV basis because it would make it appear that they've kind of overpaid for what they've, um, what they've purchased. So you know, I, I think there's a sweet spot in terms of you know, where NAV value ranges should be for mergers to work. I'd say it's somewhere between 70% of NAV and maybe 105% of NAV. If you get you know below 70% of NAV or above 105% of NAV, then I think you know either the shares that you're receiving aren't going to be that attractive, or you'd prefer to use um, use cash. But I can say for the last like several years, you know most of the most of the public shipping companies um, you know have traded kind of in that band of 70 to 105% of, um, of of NAV. So is it is it fair to say that the part of the idea is that by getting larger, it's perhaps perhaps companies will find it easier to trade closer to NAV, more liquidity and so forth. I think I think the idea is um, you know once you um, once you get into a public company, you know the share price is going to change. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. If you're a patient investor, you know you can you know kind of time your sale. You know when you feel it's appropriate to sell, you're not kind of forced to sell at any particular point in time. Well, I think an important thing to keep in mind is that almost every shipping company is a micro cap. Some of the lucky ones are small caps. Almost none are mid caps. You know, I, I view a mid cap as being sort of at least $3 billion through, through the down cycle. And, you know, there aren't a lot of shipping companies that are $3 billion. I mean, we have about 1% of the world's dry bulk fleet and we have a market cap of like $700 million. If we had every single dry bulk ship there was, that means we would have like a $70 billion market cap. And that's sort of a medium large cap company. It's not exceptional. 
that just goes to show how fragmented the market yes. truly is and how much, how much room for consolidation there, there might be. And, you know, Pankaj, the, the companies that you were involved with have much larger, larger market caps. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ocean Rig was a $2.7 billion sale, uh, but it's in a different sector. Uh, the offshore sector market caps are obviously much larger, uh, but still not $70 billion. Uh, I think the, you know, this is obviously a hurdle. Uh, you know, the, the fact that the capital markets are not open is a hurdle to more consolidation. If we talk about consolidation rather than M&A activity, because if you go back in the cycle and you look back in the sort of mid 2000s up to 2010 when the capital markets were actually open, uh, a lot of transactions took place but they were more acquisitions and not mergers. And again, uh, in this industry, uh, we are not talking about the social issues as yet. Uh, the reason why some of this activity is taking place is different drivers driven by financial players, et cetera. So I think uh, in shipping in general, you have to identify why you're doing consolidation. If you want, for example, uh, pricing power, uh, this industry is too consolidated, or too fragmented, sorry, and we cannot really get commercial power. So it's really our customers who have that. You can go into pools if you are a small ship owner and uh, get the same earnings like uh, TK or a Euronav who have much larger fleets. Uh, but if you're consolidating from a, a point of view of uh, either uh, getting more capital, cheaper capital, or uh, buying power against your suppliers, then you have this driver of the merger. So you know that's where it makes sense then to consolidate to have a larger fleet so you can get the cheaper lube oil prices and the lower crew costs and so on. Well, I think that that's actually a key distinction. The the the, the drivers between tran for transactions between companies which are pure owners and those are which which are owner operators. Um, Hamish, is it possible to achieve pricing power as a as a small cap company? It's pretty hard to achieve pricing power as a mid-cap company. I mean, if we had every single dry bulk ship, we'd have some pricing power. But then somebody else might come into the market. And are, are pooling companies and, and, and operators, you know, do they have a, a real advantage, Pankaj? Well, uh, it's a way to consolidate the market and get some more uh, utilization on your ships. So, I mean, you can imagine if you are a five-ship owner trying to run five Aframaxes, for example. Which area are you going to trade in? Will the customers treat you as strategic? Will you get a COA contract? None of those things happen. But now if you contribute those five ships into a pool, then obviously you are able to get those advantages that a larger fleet does. So when we compare the performance of a company like Heidmar on their TCEs versus some of the public peers, uh, they're almost comparable. So as a small ship owner, you can get comparable earnings uh, from much larger fleets by being in pools. But that's one way to get that consolidation if you want that. And, sure. Jerry. And I, I don't get me wrong, I fully agree with my co-panelists that there is, uh, in reality, no uh, pricing power in a very fragmented industry, but there are ways to differentiate yourself. I mean. We have been uh, active uh, very much as CPLP uh, across segments on the period side of the business. And uh, there are certain customers, um, the totals, the BPs, uh, and the likes in the world, that uh, they will pay a premium to do business with uh, the very few qualified owners. 
and it might be a small premium, uh, I don't uh, disagree with that, but um, when uh, you have the right vessel and you are one of a ha handful approved owners and the others are not simply available, then you can from time to time command a premium compared to owners. So there is a bit of differentiation, not really pricing power, but you can differentiate yourself from, from peers and achieve uh, uh, a premium if your operations uh, tick all the right boxes. And I think that was also very much what we appreciated in uh, the merger that we did with Diamond S, that we had two, um, uh, two operators with uh, very similar uh, philosophy and uh, targeting uh, the same class of customers. So when we merged uh, here Diamond S and, uh, uh, and CPLP, we ended up with uh, a customer portfolio that includes BP, Total, Repsol, Cell, uh, Charters, and that's something that uh, it's not open to everybody when it comes to period. Greg, what would you say? Yeah, I can't. Uh, I can't say it better than, than Jerry. Um, you know, I think. I think thinking that you're going to consolidate yourself to significant prof profitability over your peers have real pricing power. I don't. I don't think that's that's probably uh, uh, an aspiration that you should have necessarily because probably is not going to happen. Differentiating yourself on the key metrics and what those key metrics mean, how you run ships, quality of your ships, the the SGNA cost per ship day, the operating cost per ship day, and the revenue generating cost per ship day. That's, that's super important. And that is really what we all do to differentiate ourselves. And over time, uh, it can make a meaningful amount of money. Ian. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, it, it, the concept of, of owner's pools in the container sector, well, it just doesn't exist. Um, so it's different from dry bulk and, and, and tankers. So we focus on having the right ships which are well maintained uh, with top specifications that are in incredibly attractive to our customers. And then you can get some premium pricing uh, uh, against the lesser specified, less well maintained peers. And in a downturn, your, your good vessels will get employment, whereas less good vessels may not get any employment at all. Uh, so it's really important to have the right assets uh, and look after them properly. Fortunately, we've had uh, cash flows to be able to do that over the dozen years that we've been in existence. There are many private owners that have not had that um, uh, ability. Uh, so we're, we're, in, we're in good shape, um, but it comes down to the individual asset, looking after it and having assets which are attractive in the market. So this, this sounds almost like specialization or in, you know, this, this discussion of differentiation. Um, Hamish, is that a key in your view to, to growing a larger company? or, or as, as multiple vessels across different types? Well, sorry, you know, the, the, the key to growing star bulk through mergers was first of all, that we had class leading operating costs per vessel per day, class leading overhead per vessel per day. And we had a, uh, a reputation that was justified by the facts for being an open organization uh, with good governance so that people were comfortable merging their fleet into our company and taking back shares. And, uh, you know, we expanded our board uh, by a couple of people in the process of making these acquisitions, which not every company in the industry would have been prepared to do. I think that, that goes to the social issues, perhaps, that Pankaj mentioned a, a couple of minutes ago. I, I've 
been to conferences like this one and people have talked about the significance of social issues in the past, but certainly they don't seem to be an impediment to the transactions we, we were talking about today. What's, what's changed along those lines? Well, nothing's changed. The, the reason the transactions went through were that social issues weren't an impediment. If <laughs> the transactions where social issues were an impediment didn't happen. And is that because of the nature of, of the, these, these buyers as, as public companies? Well, I think, I think social issues are important. Yeah, I mean, you, it's probably the first thing you have to worry about in a uh, merger. Yeah. I mean, NAV to NAV and then the social issues, right? So think about it, NAV to NAV is not, not so difficult, right? So, so you have to find the right, the right merger partner. And well, social, the, people, the, the people matter. Uh, you, know, you know, you, you talk to M&A type attorneys and deal guys, they'll tell you social, social issues are the, are the biggest uh, impediment typically. The math, they can figure out. I think I, think, I, think I would I just add, I think there's, um, there's kind of two types of social issues. There's, you know, who's going to manage the company, which is certainly like a very important social issue. And then there's corporate governance and boards and, you know, what, what's, you know, who's going to kind of manage the management. Um, you know, so those are the two social issues. I think most of the companies you've seen that have been leading on the consolidation front, the buyers have, you know, had, you know, very good corporate governance, um, independent boards, um, and the companies that have merged in, you know, have, have liked that fact. And, you know, I think they've, you know, I think they've managed to, you know, kind of work out social issues with management. Um, you know, but, you know, in, in, in cases where there's not good corporate governance, um, you know, I think that's also a huge social impediment to, um, to mergers. Ian, could, could I ask you, were, were social issues a factor at all in your negotiations? Uh, I'm going to say not really. Um, we're a very small company. There's, there's only 10 of us uh, in, in London. Um, and, and we've merged with an organization disparate organization with some related companies which has 150 people in Athens. Uh, so it's kind of a no-brainer as to where, where the work, workforce is going to be going down the track. Uh, when I say not really, I, I mean because it was addressed very early on um, by our merger partners and, and we had an open discussion about who, who, who they wanted to help run the business and vice versa, bearing in mind they ended up as being the larger shareholder controlling 63, 65% of the company or so. You know, they kind of were calling the shots. Um, you know, we have an established corporate governance system as a public company, you know, that continues. Uh, and then um, you know, we were very small, so, so the, the social issues were, were limited. There will be casualties, unfortunately, um, but we're, we're trying to take care of those as best as we can by looking after the people financially. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say that uh, with Ocean Rig, we had uh, 120 people ashore, and of the 120, almost 70 people were laid off eventually. And how that process was handled, and so, I mean, when we talk about social issues, we're really talking about people, uh, because over here, what people are talking about is more about whether the owner gave up control and so on, but there are also people issues involved in, if you do a real merger where you are actually looking at synergies and laying off people, and how those uh, discussions are handled and how people are handled is the critical aspect. So uh, I can tell you that the people who were laid off all walked away with handsome packages. So as long as you can factor that into the economics when you're working through the model, 
then it's possible to handle those kind of social issues. But people's egos are a different matter. Chris, Chris have you seen transactions that were vetted but never really got off the ground because of social issues? Yeah, I think, I think you know, probably 75, 80% of transactions that you begin working on, you know, are pretty quickly next. And, you know, very often it's due to um, social issues or, um, or governance issues, which I, I kind of put into the same boat. Is that a trend that you think will get better over time, given, you know, this kind of new spotlight on consolidation and the advantages that companies that are larger may have? I actually think it will get better because I think you're seeing, you know, the better managed and better governed companies getting bigger quickly. And I think you're going to, you know, see them continue to win, you know, the consolidation, um, you know, battles. And, um, and I think, you know, good boards, you know, can, you know, figure out kind of good outcomes for their shareholders. Um, and, you know, they usually work things out with their management teams. Craig, you looked like you might have a reaction to that. You know, I'm, a, I'm aware that a number of deals didn't, didn't happen because of social issues. Um, somebody's got to go to the beach. Somebody gets to run it, the other guy goes to the beach, typically, right? And, and sometimes both guys would like to run it. And so, you know, your bankers will, will ferret that out early on in the process. If that's a problem, it probably comes out real fast. So can, can we do a little prognostication? Uh, I think we've, we've sort of figured out what the framework for a successful transaction in the current environment is like. There's often a financial sponsor on the sell side. There's a public company on the buy side. There are factors relating to NAV and share price, social issues, and so forth. Is, is M&A a sustainable trend in shipping? Or may, maybe take a step back. There's consolidation generally, companies getting larger, and then there's M&A with you know, stock as currency. Jerry. May, may I add, there is, there is another factor that I think uh, will come back with a vengeance um, that we saw back in 2013 on a grander scale. Uh, back in, in 2017 and 2018, we saw a number of OTC listings in Oslo, uh, which are very liquid and in a market where, as um, we all know, um, most of the listed companies are microcaps. Imagine when you have an illiquid company uh, sitting in Oslo with um, uh, a number of investors um, uh, either trapped or invested but looking for an exit. So if I may, and this is slightly different from your financial sponsor problem that we described earlier on. This is not necessarily one private equity or two, one that wants to go public. It's simply a very liquid paper that was actually put together in order to find the next down the line. I mean, Starbulk uh, provided uh, a conduit for uh, at least one of those vehicles. And I think we're going to see more of that because there are at least three or four of those um, uh, sitting in the Oslo DC that uh, will have to find, uh, uh, that will have to find a home and M&A is probably the only way out. Do you think transactions like that are imminent or can they hold on for a while? Well, um, uh, I think uh, if I can uh, dare, um, if uh, if I can dare prognostication, I think they will they will come earlier than later. Um, in the end, as I said, it's very liquid paper, so people will want an exit as well as uh, the original principals uh, will want to find uh, a home for those transactions. So, um, but in the end, it's all dependent on the market. I mean. Um, uh, 
I think tanker markets right now uh, seem to be on the right path for both crude as well as product, and uh, this might be really the catalyst uh, that uh, some of these uh, transactions are looking for. Pankaj, would you, would you agree with that? Hey, look, I have the luxury over here of not working for a public company, so I can say this. Uh, you know, I don't know if shipping is the right uh, industry for being public, uh, especially when the capital markets are closed. So, you know, what's the point of the consolidation and the mergers if you have no liquidity and you can't raise capital? Uh, the belief of the investors in the industry has been sort of withered, has withered away over the last few years. So unless we can build back companies which are clean, have good corporate governance, uh, perform well, don't have related party transactions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which everybody knows what needs to be done. Unless we have that, I think uh, uh, it's difficult to see what the right driver for consolidation is because uh, you, know, you can achieve the effects of consolidation uh, by going into pools or into buying clubs and so on, if that's the driver. Uh, if the access to capital markets is a driver, but then you know the capital markets have to develop enough where you can actually raise capital, or you can have a company which is attractive enough to investors, so then you can go out and raise capital. Hamish, would, is there a counterpoint to that argument? Well, I, I, I don't know that it's a, it's a counterpoint exactly, but I think the, the, the hope would be that if we have companies I mean, shipping is cyclical, so a company that is, you know, mid-cap in the down cycle might be substantially larger than mid-cap in the up cycle, but if you have a company that in the lowest portion of the down cycle has a $3 billion market cap, it's probably going to be relatively liquid. And as a relatively liquid company, it's probably going to perform as a stock a lot better than the current you know, small and micro cap shipping companies that we've got. Um, so I, I think that that is something that we can shoot for. Greg. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think I think one of the reasons the market, uh, the, the tanker market in particular, trades so poorly is just no earnings. Uh, and, and so for the last several years, uh, people bought into the earnings are just about to start and it didn't happen that way. And so I think they're waiting. And so they want to see a quarter or two quarters of, of appreciable earnings, and I think you'll see these stocks, you know, trading at least at NAV. And, um, and so I, I, th I think it's, it's sort of, um, it's, probably, uh, it's probably good for the market. And that is, in, in a sense, you're not ordering new ships right, left, and center as a result of having so much cash today or having capital markets open. So um, I think it indicates that the market might have more legs than you think. Chris, what would you say? You know, I think, um, I think there's a lot of like owners, particularly of tankers, but you can look across all asset classes that look at kind of 2020 being kind of an important year in terms of, you know, that's like the year that things, you know, should get better with the new IMO regulations. And they should be in a position to be able to, um, you know, monetize their investments if they choose to do so kind of somewhere around that period. Um, so, you know, there's positives and negatives associated with, with you know, consolidation. Um, but I think, 
you know, one of the reasons why mergers with public companies make sense, even, even if they trade below NAV, is, you know, when the market gets better, as Craig mentioned, these shares are going to trade a lot higher, and there will be, you know, I think a lot more interest in, you know, in the sector. And it, you know, it, it's really the best way, you know, for a lot of these investors to, um, to, to get liquid in their, in their old investments. So I, I, think, I think we'll see a reasonable amount of activity this year on the, um, on the M&A front, but I think it'll be very selective. Um, and there is like, I guess, a shrinking number of, you know, good, you know, targets um, in terms of who you're gonna buy. So a lot of the big PE-owned um, companies and, and some of the big Norwegian publicly listed companies have already merged with, um, with others. There aren't a lot of new ones being formed, but with that said, there's still, you know, probably at least a dozen or more, you know, larger private companies that, you know, I think, you know, or good merger candidates, or, or Norwegian publicly listed companies, I'd say I'd put them, you know, I, I agree with Jerry's comment on Norway. Well, thank you for that. I see we're already out of time. Any last notes from anybody? Well, thank you very much.